Welcome to another edition of Life Behind Bars. Um, Noah Rothbaum, the Daily Beast half-full editor. Joining me, as always, is my colleague and co-host, David Wondrich. Howdy. How's it going? Oh, excellent. Yourself? Pretty good. Interesting topic this week, talking about world-famous bartenders who have essentially been forgotten. It's sort of the fleeting nature of fame. I mean, you could be some of the most famous people in the world. In your town, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and your town could be New York City or or others. And where, you know, everybody knows you, stuff's being written about you in papers or you're writing stuff in papers. And then a century later, not even, you know, you could be totally forgotten. Well, Well, I mean, it's funny, you know, bartenders... Work is measured by the drink, right? You know, and and as long as you're mixing drinks, and more important, as long as you're talking to customers and they're hosting in your bar, you're a celebrity. But then it's hard to uh, maintain something like that for posterity, right? You know, in other professions, a book might live on, yeah. or you know, a painting or something, you know, a building. But here. Really, if you're the best at what you do, hopefully one of your drinks lives on. And, and, and we see that, but sometimes those drinks sort of get separated yeah. from their creators. Well, sometimes you're not you're famous not for your drinks. But let's talk about one guy who, yeah. who was famous for his drinks and who has lived on yeah. through at least one of his drinks. Right. And that's uh, Duncan Nickel from the Bank Exchange in, in right. San Francisco. That was a pretty famous bar. I yeah. Mean, I, the bar was built before Duncan took over. It was built in 1853. It was in the first big, heavy stone building in San Francisco. It was, it was a building built to be fireproof and earthquake-proof Okay, because San Francisco kept sure. burning. I mean, it was right. really, you know, yeah. was, the, the town was like the gold rush was only four years old. I remember from a story that you wrote um, earlier this year about the origins of San Francisco, but the gold rush you know, really remade the town from a town of literally dirt streets to one, you know, where it's paved. They leveled the hills, (laughs) most of them. They left a couple, but yeah, they they did all this stuff. So they built this huge building and uh, there had been a bar on the corner called the Bank Exchange. So there was a Bank Exchange bar in the new building. The building was was so strong that when they finally tore it down in 1963, it took them a month. Wow. And it was only four stories high. It survived everything, yeah. and then yeah. they turned it into a parking lot. Oh, no. And then they built the Transamerica Pyramid on top of it. But anyway, so so the, the bar was uh, open for a long time before Duncan Nickel got there. Duncan Nickel was born in 1852, right. just a, a year before the bar opened. Born in Scotland, in Glasgow, in not a rich part of Glasgow either. He was a uh, apprenticed as a merchant seaman when he was 16 in the British Merchant Marine. He got to San Francisco, and I just found this out. I found the record. Uh, he jumped ship. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's like buried in, in like British right. uh, labor records. There's <laughs> you, you, you can find it online if you look really hard. He's on one manifest and then yeah. he's not. And then there's a note, jump right. ship, you know. <laughs> During the height of the gold rush, yeah. that's where a lot of the people well, come yeah. from. Well, yeah, Jerry right? Thomas jumped sure. ship in San Francisco in 1849. And he was, you know, the most famous... Uh, bartender there was. And aren't even people like literally ditching their ships right yeah. in the harbor yeah, yeah. And, and they were using some yeah. of the ships to like build out the city into the water like. Yeah, San Francisco yeah. was a crazy place. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and there's still, there are a couple uh, bars there today on the waterfront and or restaurants that are built on a foundation of old ships. Right. 
because they just ram them into the shore and then fill the hold with rocks right. and just <laughs> build on top of it. Another famous bartender, I think he jumped ship in 1859, was uh, Harry Johnson, oh, yeah. the, the so-called dean of American bartenders, mostly because he was the most technical writer of them. It was a thing. And I imagine that it probably also gave these people like a view of the world that few people have, oh, yeah. right? I mean, like... It's before the car. It's before the plane. It's before you know train yeah, travels. Yeah, there was no other exotic, way to get around. Right? I mean, yeah. so these are some of the few people who'd actually been to other yeah. cities, towns, countries, continents. You know, and they got to see. Then they saw San Francisco, and they were like, <laughs> "Okay, cool, cool. <laughs> I'm done with that. Now right. I'm going to do this." <laughs> I mean, San Francisco was right. a pretty wide open town. Right. Exactly. So, and for it was the Wild West, yeah, yeah. It, was, it was. It was like, oh, you know, something could happen here, and people were drinking really well. I mean, we've talked about this before and you've written about it before, but they weren't taking their gold and putting it in, you know, bonds. They were putting it in bottles. Right, they were yeah. putting it right on the, the bar top yeah. and, you know, buying fancy champagne and cognac and cocktails. And yeah, when Jerry Thomas got there in, in 1849, it was a dollar a drink. Wow. When everywhere else in the country, it was about 10 cents a drink. Yeah. You know, San Francisco, pretty... and people would pay. Every bar had scales for the gold dust. If you thought San Francisco was expensive today, yeah, it yeah, it was, it was, it was really expensive back then. Yeah, gold Google, dust. Google has nothing on gold yeah. dust. So. Yeah, yeah. So Duncan Nickel came after that. You know, eighteen sixty nine. He gets there. The gold rush was over. Now the the new rush was uh, silver over in Virginia City, and that was further away. San Francisco prices had calmed down. The city was built. Right. You know, it was being built very fast out of stone and and brick, and no longer like flimsy wooden houses. And he started tending bar as a bar back at uh, this place, Alfonso Vaughn's Crystal Palace Saloon. And I bet that Crystal Palace Saloon was kind of nice. It was yeah. right there on Market Street, the main drag. Sure. And uh, I don't know much about it. There's, it's hard to find out much about this, but it was. It seems to have been a fancy place. Yeah. And, you know, he starts his bar back, works his way up to the Parker House on Portsmouth Square, which is now part of Chinatown. Portsmouth Square was the old heart of San Francisco. I imagine it looked a little bit different back then. Yeah, I think. And, and this thing is on the it squats on the site of the Parker House. Right. For a while there, the premier bar in town. Yeah. It was the bar you went to to get the best bartenders. Even in 1869, it was still famous. It had been famous since the 18, 1850s. At that time, like San Francisco was really, you know, sort of famous for its high level of hotels and oh, yeah. hospitality. And you see, like, even the. The Fairmont, I think, is built not that much after the one. That's on, right. Not that's Hill, right. And, and, and the St. Francis. Right. Exactly. You yeah. have this, you know, sort of rivaling New yeah. York, or you know. Yeah, it was because there was it. money there. Right. You know, uh, there was so much money because of first the gold rush, but even more came out of Virginia City in Nevada, and San Francisco was the nearest port, so right. everything went to San Francisco, <laughs> and and Virginia City was a, a mountain of silver wow. that they hollowed out. Yeah. I mean, it was like literally the whole mountain was silver. <laughs> <laughs> there was the biggest, richest vein of silver, right. and uh, they just kept digging and digging and, and and pulling it out. It wasn't gold, but there was so much of it. Right. We'll and, take it. Yeah, we'll take it. Exactly. All this money's flowing in, and uh, the bank exchange, which you know had been open forever at this point, starts faltering and gets sold. Eighteen eighty-seven, after uh, Duncan Nickel had been there for you know twenty years almost, he. Uh, takes over with a partner and buys the bank exchange. 
and he saves it and re kind of revitalizes it, which is kind of funny because he's not like the most outgoing guy. Right. He's a Scot. <laughs> and a Glaswegian at that. As a Glaswegian, right. exactly. So he's a little closed-mouthed. He's a little grumpy. He's not interested. A guy gets shot uh, at his bar uh, soon after he takes over. And uh, it was like right at the bar during, you know, the cocktail hour. And uh, he testifies that uh, he didn't see it. (laughs) He was looking the other way. He didn't see who did it. Yeah. Yeah. He just he kept his mouth shut. You know, he was one of those guys. The bar like really takes off because he was a good manager and uh, he was one of those kind of quiet bartenders who, if you're a good customer, is your friend, you know, right. and and, and he, everybody respected him for being gentlemanly, which meant he wasn't like a loud ass clown. Right. And the drinks were good, right? And the I mean, drinks were good. Yeah. Right. He knew how to mix drinks. Right. He, he was very good at that. And he introduced this drink, Pisco Punch. Right. Since the gold rush, it had come up from South America because ships had to make sure. port, made ports of call in uh, Peru and Chile, both of them made Pisco. And they brought it up the coast uh, and dropped it off. And this brandy, it turns out, made a nice punch. And people in San Francisco had made punch out of it before. But Duncan Nickel perfected it. Right. He always pre-batched the main part of it in the basement so nobody oh. could see how he mixed it. Okay. And it was like, like pineapple syrup and pisco together. And some people say maybe a little bit of cocaine. Huh. <laughs> Uh, which was legal then. Yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, there Medicinal was something in even. It. People uh, attributed extraordinary right. powers to his Pisco Punch. But then he'd take this and he'd mix it in front of you with fresh lemon juice and distilled water. And always mixed to order. Right. You know, so the base was would, would keep. But he always did the, 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 the lemon juice and, and the water, the dilution to order and made it precisely the same for everybody. And that becomes essentially the signature of San oh, yeah. Francisco. Oh, yeah. And everybody is, I mean, even more so than, you know, anywhere else in the country, Pisco yeah. Punches becomes oh, a sort it, of regional, like, you know, hit. You know? Absolutely. And, and it becomes really associated with the bank exchange right. to the point where uh, San Francisco City Hall moves away. It, it had been down on, on Monco- near Montgomery Street where, uh, where the bank exchange was. And then it moves to where it is now, uh, like a mile away, right. a mile and a half away. And that kills a lot of the businesses around there. This guy, Louis Eppinger, had a, had a very popular bar. Business dries up. He moves to uh, Portland and then to Yokohama and kind of mm. uh, helps jumpstart American mixology in Japan. But uh, Duncan Nickel stayed, and he kept his place the same. And it becomes one of those institutions like McSorley's here in yeah. New York is famous because it never changes. You know, it has a name or sort of signifies a neighborhood that's no longer there. Yeah, right? yeah exactly. It's like the last <laughs> survivor. San Francisco earthquake and fire comes. And the bank exchange survives perfectly fine <laughs> because sure. the Montgomery block it's right. in was was really a direct hit by an atom bomb. Could have probably <laughs> cracked some windows, right. but otherwise, was, otherwise it was fine. The- it was built by this guy Halleck, who was a, a master in military fortifications, so it was pretty strong. Not bad, not bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Duncan Nickel keeps on till prohibition, just mixing his drinks. Uh, Clay closes early. He only like allows two or three drinks to a customer. I love he it. gets. Really Really cranky at all, he, basically. He's, he's like the Kenny Shopson. Of, yeah, exactly. Uh, who just recently passed away, who had a famous um, restaurant in New York's, I guess, uh, Greenwich Village, 
and he was, you know, famously cantankerous and had all these rules because he didn't want to overwhelm the kitchen. So, you yeah, know, like no parties bigger than four, you know, so all these, you know, two and eight is, you know, two parties of four is still an eight or a three and a five is still an eight. And yeah. And that's not allowed. Eight, right? yeah. One these, of, well, yeah. Half your friends have to go somewhere right. else. He's ready to kick anybody out yeah. at any time. And, and yeah. you know, that always makes me think exactly. The, the bank exchange is the same kind of idea where if you were regular, you could maybe get away with a, you know. Yeah few things or an extra drink or in the case of Kenny asking for no roll for your hamburger or something. But you he know, needed to know you. Yeah, if you were yeah. unknown, it was very yeah. suspect to walk into that kind of place. The bank exchange became a little bit of a tourist place, yeah. too, you know, because it was famous. So people had to check off the Pisco Punch right. at the bank exchange. You know, check, I did that. And I, and I guess people were really drinking Pisco Punch until Prohibition, I yeah. guess, since Harold's, I mean, it's yeah. like... Uh, Harold Ross of The New Yorker, who was from San Francisco, yeah. founding editor, sure. he remembered the jars of Pisco being unloaded at the wharf <laughs> to, to go to the bank exchange. Because right. it came in these clay jugs from Peru. That's amazing. Yeah. In recent years, we've seen... Pisco Punch, you know, it's sort of a rebirth of Pisco mm-hmm. Punch, especially in San Francisco. And a lot of the San Francisco bartenders, you know, embrace the drink and Pisco overall. Yeah, but, but, yeah some of their versions are a little uh, remote. It's popular enough where I think, you know, people name check it all the time. It's yeah. on menus. But you very rarely hear the name Duncan Nickel, yeah. you know. And that's, you know, it's kind of funny where his legacy lives on. But the person who created yeah. it is... And well, he, he never wrote down his recipe. Right. You know, that's a problem. It's recreated by, from people who knew him. Right. But it's, nobody knows if it's the real recipe. Right. Other people, like Henry Ramos of the Ramos sure. Fizz fame, uh, wrote his recipe down and handed it out all over. <laughs> and his bar was still packed. But uh, Duncan Nickel thought it would, like, you know, mess him Maybe up. Maybe we can get our friend Beach Bum Berry, who decoded, you know, all yeah, of the yeah. tiki recipes from Trader Vic and... Don Beach, who was also secretive in his, you know, writing everything in Mm. code. And, you know, it took, I don't know, Beach Bum several years and perhaps a decoder ring from a cereal box to figure out Orjot was A and, you know, whatever was B in in Trader Vic and Don Beach's. Well, we need to set him loose in the attics of San Francisco. Yeah, exactly. You know, the storage spaces and the, the basements and see if anything turns up. We've got a pretty good idea of what was in this. You know, it was just lemon juice, gum syrup, yeah. infused with pineapple, pisco, and water. Again, that cocaine angle is, right. is 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 enticing. I don't know enough about cocaine, to be honest, to know if it would change the flavor. Obviously, its effects would be its very Its effects different. would—I don't think there was so much right. that, you right. know, you'd have one drink and bug right. out. And at the time, it was in Coca-Cola, too, for a while. Yeah, it was right? in Coca-Cola. I mean, yeah, it was totally I mean, legal. a lot of yeah. pharmacists yeah. Yeah. probably yeah. had— Cocaine of some yeah. kind. Where it? do coca leaves come from? Peru. I've had coca leaf infused uh, pisco sours in San Francisco, which are delicious. It makes a very nice infusion. Oh. And that's makes, possible it's too. Possible too. I, I mean, I'm sure it's a it's a Peruvian thing. Is like yeah. coca leaf infused pisco. Maybe he was using that. Right. We don't know. It's amusing to think. Yeah. Prohibition comes anyway, and he doesn't give up his recipe, and he uh, and tootles around, gets a driver's license. He was in his seventies. And then dies in uh, like 1926, and that was the end of him. I'm going to be in San Francisco in about a week. I'll definitely order a Pisco Punch and uh, toast uh, Duncan Nichols, as uh, I suggest most of our listeners do. And next time I'm yeah, there, absolutely. I'm mixing one up. He was fortunate or smart that he had a signature drink that lived on, and that kind of gave him yeah. 
an afterlife. Another guy I think a lot about is this guy, Jim Gray, who was the head bartender at the Fifth Avenue Hotel in New York, which was the place where politicians always stayed. It was like one of the leading bars in New York. He was super famous. Everybody went to see Jim Gray. He was born in 1855 in New York City. He was a native New Yorker, and he was behind the bar by the time he was 17 or even 15. In 1882, he was at the Astor House, which was one of the fanciest bars in New York. And the downtown. world. I mean, yeah, in the world. Super yeah, the Astor House was, was a big deal. So he had like this career, and then he ends up at the Fifth Avenue Hotel for like 20 yeah. years. He was so famous in his during his life. He was like Nick the Vest, the bartender uh, at Rayo's in Harlem. He always wore fancy vests, right. and he'd wear several different ones in a day. Wow. He'd go and change his vest. Sure. And it got to the point where his rich customers would come in with bolts of cloth for him <laughs> to get vests made out right. of. You know, if they were traveling somewhere, they found something exotic. It's kind of like, you know, like the 21 Club, the ceiling, you know, yeah. is, is a sea of all these mementos that people brought back. And I feel like similar clientele would be at the Fifth Avenue exactly Hotel. Exactly so. They would, you know, I think get a lot of uh, enjoyment out of seeing him wear the vest. Exactly. That they're, you know, they brought the cloth back. And I can imagine perhaps that's why he changed so often as, yeah. as different people came in. He yeah, wanted he to like, wear the show it off. Yeah. I mean, it's good customer relations. Yeah, oh, for sure. You know, and, and it was exactly that crowd. Yeah. It was like senators, sitting presidents. Prince of Wales, sure, uh, of even b before Jim was there, but yeah. uh, he, he stayed there. Everybody stayed at the Fifth Avenue Hotel. It was right at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 23rd Street on Madison Square, yeah. which was the fancy part of town at the time, right near Delmonico's Restaurant, yeah. the fanciest restaurant. And uh, yeah, it, it, it opened in like 1850s and lasted up until uh, 1912 or 13 when, oh, 1908 rather, when it got torn down. Jim Gray was there, you know, from the 1880s, so he was there yeah. for like 20 years. He was famous for his old-fashioned, he claimed, although... It his, was different, though. It was because, yeah, he didn't use bitters, and he shook it. Okay. But he said, I invented the old-fashioned, right. and I do it my way. There's usually whiskey and sugar and a little bit of ice. So yeah, and ice and water with, with, uh, with like some some nutmeg grated on top, so it was kind of a toddy, really. Right. Potent. No wonder yeah. everybody was yeah. so happy there. yeah. Made rum punches and just really simple drinks. Yeah. Uh, so he wasn't famous as a mixologist. He was famous as a character, you and know? I, and I kind of feel like even though his, his name has been largely forgotten and yeah. he didn't leave any, you know, drinks, he sort of leaves this legacy where we see, you know, bartenders following in his footsteps. I mean, literally for decades after, oh, yeah. like these types of, you know, establishments serving the 1% or the people who want to be the 1% where, you know, whether it's, you know, Norman Buckholzer, you know, the Ritz Carlton who That's recently right. retired, right. who's famous for his Manhattans or Doug, um, you know, uh, over at Hudson Malone, yeah. you know, they pride themselves on knowing everybody's yeah, name, exactly. their drink order. They're not certain primarily level. mixologists. Right. You know, they mix drinks, right. but they're primarily like... It's it, the art of hospitality. Yeah, too. exactly. It's they're fine. hosts. The drinks are good, but they're not, yeah. you know, maybe not amazing. But yeah. the point is that people, especially the very well-heeled and famous, mm -hmm. keep coming back because of that sort of level of... They like personal attention. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they like a little bit of sucking up. Oh, that is my well, vest. I mean, yeah. right. That's my vest. Oh, that's the drink that I ordered. Yeah. You, you yeah. always know that I want yeah. it this way. Yeah, Jim. exactly. The funny thing about Jim Gray also is when the Fifth Avenue uh, Hotel closed, he moved up the block to the greatest mixology bar in New York right. and killed it there, too. 
the Hoffman House. house yeah, is... he was there for a couple of years. Uh, then, then that closed to demonstrate that he was still a spring chicken. <laughs> he mixed thirty-five punches in forty-five minutes, wow. talking the whole time. Right. That's pretty good. Yeah. Well, especially the talking part. Yeah, exactly. he didn't put his head down. You know, he, and these were like individual punches. Oh, yeah. He knew how to mix drinks. It makes, I can see him yeah. carrying on three conversations yeah. using like four spoons. Yeah, to mix. exactly. I mean, obviously, there's the legendary Hoffman House, you know, cocktail book. And, mm-hmm. But a lot of famous bartenders go through there. Oh, yeah. A lot of clientele. And it's almost, it kind of reminds me of when the Dead Rabbit first opened. They had, you know, kind of this all-star team of bartenders. Oh, absolutely. Who do like, you know, Gary Regan was there. Yeah. And Wits and, you know, uh, Frankie Marshall and all these other folks would come in for one night and it's almost like the Hoffman House where he was like, okay, like I'm not I'm not like a fancy bartender, but I cater to a fancy clientele. Yeah. And they had a fancy clientele yeah, at the, exactly. the Hoffman House. You know, all kinds of people. When he made the uh, 35 drinks among the audience with Buffalo Bill Cody, for instance, right. you know, and all kinds of other rich yeah. people. So Jim Gray, like, killed it there, too, you yeah. know, and it's just really funny. But the Hoffman House also, their former head bartender, uh, Charlie Mahoney, their, their, yeah. their last, like, really famous one, wasn't as much famous for mixing drinks, although he mixed yeah. uh, good drinks. He was famous as a stakeholder in bets. Right. <laughs> and, and, and if you had any big money bets... That's where you went. You'd give him the yeah. money to hold, yeah. you know. And, and uh, he, he was almost dead of flu once, and he had to get in a carriage and come down from the Bronx to, to, pay off, <laughs> to pay off a bet. I mean, I think the Hoffman House is so fascinating. I mean, it's literally the grandest stage for, like, bartending and the sporting life. And there's, you know, a famous giant painting behind the bar that's now at Williams College at their museum. You know, there are different rooms and from the stereo optic cards I've seen, heavy carpets and, you know, Lots of cars wood. Yeah, exactly. It's like... Draperies and... Just in case you know where you were. It's like, this place is rich. Tread lightly in our fancy carpet. I think they had one of the first stock tickers, too. Wow. I think this might have even been during Jim Gray's uh, time there, is William Randolph Hearst comes in to uh, see his father, who was a senator, and says, um, Father, could I have some money? And Father goes, it's uh, in my overcoat hanging over there. And he goes, you know, I want some money at the track. Right. Take take, take what you need. And he pulls out $30,000. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Just hanging in the yeah, overcoat. Well, of course. You know, I mean, who's going to take it there? Who's going to take it? There's right. Also, there's more where that came right. from. Unbelievable. So, uh, you know, the Hoffman House was full of stuff like that. Yeah. And the number of famous bartenders who went through there, who were trained there, like yeah. Frank Meyer at the, of the Ritz Hotel, yeah, sure. uh, all these people went through there and yeah. worked at the Hoffman House. Perhaps an episode, you know, to come just about the Hoffman House. We could talk for hours about that. Here's two of the many famous bartenders that, you know, sort of been forgotten, you know, over mm-hmm. the decades since, I guess, the golden age of, of cocktails. And our first episode was about Jerry Thomas, who obviously, you know, you wrote the book on. And, you know, he's become so famous that, you know, there's a Jerry Thomas project in Rome. Yeah. And bartenders have tattoos of Jerry Thomas. And, you know, they're all new, you know, editions of the book. And you see all of his drinks all over. And he's referenced in a lot of articles and talks. And do you think if, if it hadn't been for, for your book, do you think that we would know who Jerry Thomas was? That's a good question. If I hadn't written that book, somebody else would have. You think, I think, yeah, yeah because it was... He was in the air. You know, it's like, where does this stuff come from? I first got onto him meeting by chance some people from Slow Food New York, you know, part of the Italian slow food movement. And uh, I I said, we should do a tribute to Jerry Thomas because American bartending was a slow food art. 
and and at this point that we were just kind of coming back to that I, that concept. Oh, two, oh, three, yeah, yeah, this was oh two, yeah. and and uh, and we did the tribute in oh three at the Plaza with Dale DeGroff and Robert Hess, yeah. and the late great Sasha Petrosky and yeah. Audrey Saunders and. Ted, Dr. Cocktail, Hay, and myself, Gary Regan, making drinks, and uh, George, the bartender from from the plaza, who'd uh, attended bar at the Black and White Ball uh, in the 60s, uh, 30 or 40 years earlier. Um, And we we had this wonderful tribute and really called attention. And I think somebody would have written a book about him because people were already kind of working on it when I was. He was the great figure we needed, you know. We needed somebody to, to, to hold up as an example. Right. I'm glad that I could help with that. Yeah. So much has been lost to history. I mean, that we keep digging and digging. There's so much rich stuff that you know, we've forgotten and so many amazing There's so stories. much stuff we'll never find, yeah. you know. Some of the great African-American bartenders, yeah. uh, the, the amount of information we have on them is very small. Yeah. You know, and, and I would love to, to, to see interviews with them, yeah. you know, talking about how they got over in, in such, a, such a difficult world. Jim Gray, fortunately, got written up a lot. Yeah. Duncan Nickel got written up a fair amount, you know. Other bartenders have got written up a lot, but there are a lot who barely, yeah. you know. We don't know who invented the Manhattan. Right. <laughs> we don't know lot. who invented the, the goddamn martini. Right. <laughs> you know? It's not like, yet. Not yet. Not I yet. still have hope. We're working on it. Hope. We're working I on it. I still have hope. Yeah, there's well, more sources to come. If we do find... The, the, the creator of either shrinks will certainly include that in a future episode. Absolutely. <laughs> to all the bartenders known and unknown, uh, we'll raise a glass tonight. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.